Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Greetings and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast program sponsored by the Holly Street Church of Christ in Denver, Colorado, broadcasting out to the world. Today, you've got your two regular co-hosts, myself and Brian. Brian, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing well. Yeah, looking forward to this episode. Yep. And as we sometimes do uh, from time to time, uh, we like to share with our listeners some uh, questions that we have received to our website. You know, our thought is that, you know, you might have similar questions. Uh, and could benefit from the answers that we've previously provided to the person who submitted the questions. And also, perhaps as a side benefit, you might get a sense of the diversity of questions we receive and try to answer that you know might even encourage you to you know submit your own questions. That process is relatively straightforward. If you're on a desktop or a laptop computer uh, on our website at biblequestions.org, right on the homepage, there's a Ask a Question button which will take you to a form to fill out. Uh, if you happen to be on a smartphone, uh, in the upper left corner, uh, when you go to the website, there are three bars that you can click on. That'll give you a list of buttons, <laughs> equivalent buttons, with an ask a question button there. Uh, once you're on the form, it's relatively simple. You put in your email address so we can respond back to you. Put in your question or your comment. Uh, other than that, there's some other fields that are optional. I mean, if you want to share your name, that's fine. Your religious affiliation, that's fine. Uh, we also offer a weekly and monthly distribution of our articles, and you can sign up for that as well, if you like, on the form. Uh, once we get the form, we'll acknowledge a receipt back to you, uh, and you should receive a personal uh, response in the email, uh, to the email that you supplied to us, usually within you know, one or two days, give or take. As I said, relatively straightforward process. And really, over the years, we have processed literally thousands and thousands of questions. And we'd like to hear from you, too. So, uh, Brian, anything else you want to add before we uh, go through a sampling of questions from the second half of 2023? Yeah, I guess back in July, we did the first half, right, of 2023. So, for those of you that have been listening for the last few years, you know that annually we try to look back at the previous year. And there's been times, Jeff, we've done things like, you know, what are the most common questions that were submitted in the prior year? Or what questions should we be asking for the upcoming, you know, kind of mix it up a little bit. But yeah, we're back to, hey, let's just take a sampling of questions from the second half and try to, you know, pick some that might be interesting to the audience. So anyhow, looking forward to it. Cool. All right. So it looks like you get the first one from Joel. Here's what he submitted. Is repentance of a sin based on the act of sin and the people involved? Or are you repenting from the act of sin in which one asks for repentance? For example, two people commit adultery together, end it, and then repent. Time goes by. Both end up getting divorced as they were in irreconcilable marriages before the adultery. Time goes by. They see each other and rekindle the relationship. Neither are married, so are they committing adultery? Are they forbidden from ever being with each other 
or someone else? Or does God forgive and acknowledge their repentance of the act of adultery if they never commit adultery again? Oh, that's that's a pretty complex one, Brian. You may have to tease that one apart. Yeah, that one's certainly uh, multifaceted. Well, it really is pretty straightforward, though, I think, as it relates to the answer. And that is, you know, when you just think about what does it mean to repent of a sin? Well, we turn away from that sin and we turn back to God. And then going forward, we're in essence telling God, I'm going to do your will. Right? I've repented of this sin and I'm no longer going to be involved in that. Now, if two people committed adultery, which is what he used in this example, and they both repent, well, they're forgiven of that sin. No question about it. The Bible makes that clear. But that does not mean that they can remarry because they're bound in that marriage until their spouse dies. Now, we'll talk about there is an exception Jesus gave, of course, where, where we can get a divorce, if you will. But over in Romans chapter 7, Beginning in verse 2, it makes it clear that marriage is a bond that God establishes that's in place until your spouse dies, with one exception. Anyhow, Romans 7, beginning in verse 2, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. And so, in Joel's question, he mentioned that the two people he's talking about were both divorced because of what he said was irreconcilable marriages. Well, that sounds like they just didn't get along. It doesn't necessarily sound like they both had their spouses commit adultery. And that would be the only reason why that we can not only divorce, but remarry after divorce. So in Matthew chapter 19, and verse 9, here Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. So when adultery is committed, I guess the easiest way to look at it is a future marriage for the guilty party would also be considered adultery. And based on how Joel described this relationship between the two people, it sounds like they both were married, they both committed adultery, they both repented, they both ended up getting divorced, not for adultery, but because of irreconcilable differences. And so therefore, according to the scriptures, they would neither of them would have the right to remarry until their spouse dies or if they both had spouses whom they divorced because of adultery, or they put away because of adultery, and they are the innocent party. So anyhow, Jeff, I think sometimes, and this, I'm not criticizing Joel because he asked some good questions, but I think sometimes people try to find a reason to have relationships that they shouldn't have. And no doubt, people get themselves in tough situations because they don't understand what the Bible teaches. But the reality is the Bible is very clear in this matter. Well, and in our modern culture with, you know, divorce for any reason, and, and people, you know, going into um, multiple sequential, you know, marriages and divorces, etc. You know, it's fairly commonplace today, and people think nothing of it. In fact, you know, people, in many cases, just forget marriage entirely and just live together. Right. But from a scriptural perspective, it's relatively uh, restrictive. 
you know, as some people will, will um, summarize, you know, one man, one woman, or life, one exception. In fact, even the apostles or uh, Jesus' disciples in uh, Matthew 19, like you were referring to, were kind of shocked <laughs> at how restrictive uh, Jesus was uh, talking about, you know, marriage and being married uh, for life. But certainly not the way it's done today. Uh, but still, that doesn't change what the scriptures say. You know, one other you know, aspect I just might throw in here for whatever it's worth. You know, he's talking about, you know, uh, act of sin and the people involved. I don't know if he has this in mind, but, you know, sometimes sin is committed with another person. Okay. And he was talking about if both repent. I was thinking, well, what happens if only one repents? Okay. So you have two people involved in the sin. One repents. Well, is that person's forgiveness based on the other person also repenting? Well, I would say no, since individual sins are, you know, against God, so to speak. Yes, I can, in this case, you know, commit adultery with someone else. We both sinned. You know, I come to my senses. I repent, ask God for forgiveness. Uh, I ask the other person for forgiveness. I take care of my part. That other person, hard-hearted, don't repent. They're not forgiven, but I still can be. You know, and there may be other cases where sin involves two people participating together, where one one comes to a sense of repentance and can still be forgiven. I just thought I'd throw that out there for whatever that was worth as well. Anything else, Brian? Yeah, I appreciate that. You're right, because the way he asked the question, you could take it a couple different ways. And I'll just throw one other thing out there, and that is, you know, you've also sinned against that person. So when you repent, you need to repent, of course, to God, but also to the other person that you committed adultery with because you sinned against them. Yep, yep. No, not, not, that's a good one, too. All right. So uh, I guess it's my turn. Yeah. Martez asks, if a Christian man is present at a family dinner, should a Christian woman be allowed to pray before dinner? Interesting. It is. And, and certainly timely uh, in our modern era where, you know, generally speaking, you know, men and women are considered as equals. You know, there's the women's rights movement. In fact, women even starting to occupy religious leadership positions in congregations like, quote unquote, pastors or preachers or elders, etc. Uh, and certainly in some ways, in the sight of God, men and women are equal. Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 26 through 29 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now watch it, this is verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So from that perspective, you know, men and women enjoy equal access to salvation, forgiveness, you know, having their sins cleansed, hope of eternity in heaven, etc. However, at least according to the scriptures, each has different roles and different responsibilities from a spiritual perspective. Probably the, the, the main and most controversial passage found on this subject over in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Brian, you want to read that for our listeners? Yeah, sure. Here it says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. 
Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So what we have here, you know, at least within a, a religious or spiritual context of prayer, of religious teaching, religious authority, etc., the Holy Spirit through Paul uh, draws a very marked distinction, again, between roles. Doesn't mean they're not equal in terms of you know, souls and salvation, but it does say they have different roles. Also, you may notice, you know, some people might say, well, that was cultural or that was just Paul. But notice the reasoning is foundational going all the way back to the creation uh, of Genesis chapter 2. And, and certainly would be, you know, directly applicable in like worship services with, you know, prayers, preachers, uh, and even things like, you know, song leaders, uh, serving the Lord's Supper, etc. With men and women, a mixed audience uh, present, you know, during worship services. And I would submit that probably as a general principle, it would be applicable in other religious contexts, like a Bible class or quote-unquote street preaching, you know, out, out in public, and by extension, even, you know, praying for meals. So long-winded answer, if I go back to the original question, you know, if a Christian man is present at a family dinner, should a Christian woman be allowed to pray? I would tend to say no. No, that should be the role of the man as shown in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 8 through 15, as a general principle. Brian, any other thoughts? Yeah, this is a tricky one, isn't it? I agree with what you said. I mean, I do feel like 1 Timothy 2 and just the principle of, of usurping a man's headship applies here. You know, I've heard people talk about how like a husband and wife pray together. And uh, I'm not exactly sure what that meant. I didn't really ask him like, well, does that mean that sometimes she prays if you two are just together? You know, and that might be a different situation, right, where it's just a husband and wife. But to your point, the Bible makes it clear that God put man over woman. And certainly, if you're at a dinner and there are other Christian men present and a woman prays, I feel like it would definitely seem odd to everybody, right? For sure. And, and therefore, you know, kind of help us understand well, that doesn't seem quite right. Exactly. Okay, Brian, looks like you get the next question from David. He writes, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? This is one of those that I could see everybody being curious about. Like, you know, we've heard about the Holy Spirit working in people's lives. But when you think about being filled with the Holy Spirit, does this mean like I have no control over myself now? Well, if we kind of just break it down and we look in the Greek, this term filled, specifically when used with filled with the Holy Spirit scriptures, means to imbue, which is permeate, if you're not familiar with that term. So permeates, influences, supplies, or furnishes. And I like all those definitions because the Holy Spirit did do different things after he filled somebody with, you know, the Holy Spirit, as it says. So I just did some of my own research. Depending on the translation you use, this number may vary, but I use the New King James and when I searched for the statement filled with the Holy Spirit, there were 10 occasions in the New Testament where somebody was, once again, quote-unquote, filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you look at what occurred 
after each of these instances where somebody was filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll see that it was things like they were given a spiritual gift. So think about, for instance, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, when he and his family was converted and were baptized, it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began speaking in tongues. And so speaking in tongues means they were speaking in a language they did not know prior. So the uh, spiritual gift was given from the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, Peter on the day of Pentecost was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit basically controlled what Peter said and what the message that God wanted everybody on that day, the beginning of the church, to hear. Sometimes, you know, the Holy Spirit guided men as to where to go. So even in Jesus' case, if you look in Luke chapter 4, it says that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Acts chapter 16, Paul, you might remember the Macedonian call. He had this vision, and the Holy Spirit prevented them from going other places. They wanted to go into Asia, if I remember right, in Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit said no. So there were times where the Holy Spirit guided. People also, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, were told what to say when they were brought before governors and kings and so forth. And Jesus told them that when the Holy Spirit came, Jesus was going to send him after he ascended back to heaven, that the Holy Spirit would guide them into what to say. And this was really comforting for them because, you know, if you're brought before governors and kings, you may not necessarily know what to say. And Jesus said, don't worry, it'll be told to you what to say. So anyhow, that's what occurred after people were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the scriptures teach us that the gifts from the Holy Spirit served a very specific purpose. So once again, when people were speaking in tongues, they were able to communicate with people they normally wouldn't be able to speak to because they wouldn't have been understood. Maybe they prophesied, whatever it was. There were many different gifts. They all served very specific purposes in the first century. And then once the purpose was fulfilled, they ceased. So sometimes we're asked, well, are we filled with the Holy Spirit today? Well, the answer is yes, through his word, but not in any miraculous way. So you know, as it relates to those spiritual gifts ceasing that we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they are finished. They no longer exist. They're no longer needed because we have the fully revealed Word of God. We no longer need things like miracles to confirm somebody's from God. But as I mentioned, the scriptures are clear. It, it says that we are still filled with the Holy Spirit through God's Word. Now, in Colossians chapter 3.16, it talks about the Word of Christ. Well, Jesus preached and spoke the same thing the Holy Spirit revealed, so they were speaking the same thing. And Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. So through the word of Christ, we get wisdom. Galatians 5.16, Walk in the Spirit, Holy Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Well, how do we walk in the Spirit? Well, once again, through God's word. That's how it actively works in our life. But nobody's, once again, filled with the Holy Spirit today where they will perform spiritual gifts. Jeff, I'll turn it over to you. Okay, I think the key point you're making is there's a miraculous sense and there's a non-miraculous sense. And there you go. Yeah, I like that. And certainly within the, the first century, both were occurring. And now based on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where it talks about the, the miraculous ceasing, just the, the one sense, you know, continues on today. You know, while you were talking, I was reminded of another occurrence over in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 17. 
Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but, here we go, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. That's Ephesians 5. 17 through 21, which, you know, doesn't really say anything about the miraculous, but certainly it does say about having, you know, wisdom, knowing what the will of God is, being influenced, as you were referring to the definition, by the Spirit, and having that show in the singing that we do congregationally to one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and giving thanks to God. Hence the you know non-miraculous being influenced by what the Spirit had told the apostles and the prophets that they wrote down that we read and study and now reflect in our worship service. So I thought I'd add that out there as well. Yeah, I like that. And you know, it's interesting when you think about spiritual gifts, like there are some today that claim to have spiritual gifts, like healing, for instance. And of course, those are always proven to be false when somebody actually does an examination and how they're deceiving people. But the other thing is that it's important to remember is that when the apostles were filled, for instance, with the Holy Spirit, that didn't necessarily mean, in fact, it didn't mean that it can, the Holy Spirit controlled how they acted. It was still their responsibility to be obedient to God's will. But what the Holy Spirit did do was once again, give them knowledge they may not have had, being able to speak in a language they couldn't speak. And so when people claim today to have these gifts, then you know you could easily put them to the test like hey have you do you know a language that you didn't know yesterday that all of a sudden miraculously you can speak how does it manifest in your life today and the only thing people can really come up with is well i can heal people or maybe someone will claim to be able to prophesy but most of these things are really easy to disprove and anyhow it, it just goes to show that those gifts served a purpose they don't serve that same purpose today so good point all righty so i guess i get the next one yeah, Basayo asks, what are some practical ways to obey 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5? Okay, so for starters, that verse says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? Now, going on to verse 7, that kind of helps explain as well. Now I pray to God that you do no evil, but that you should do what is honorable. We see kind of a similar sentiment over in, uh, echoed in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you know, Paul writing to the Corinthians, uh, beginning with verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to receive a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, while I have preached to others, I myself should become, and there's that word again, disqualified. So how do we, quote-unquote, you know, test ourselves, examine ourselves to whether or not we are in the faith? Well, basically, we need to examine, you know, everything we do, everything we say, 
and even everything we think in light of what the scriptures teach. You know, there's a lot of verses that speak to things that we should not do, you know, that are sin. Um, and let me just kind of list a number of passages that our listeners can look up on their own. Uh, Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. And Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. These are some of the more notable passages that contain what I might call sin lists. You know, things like adultery and fornication or anger, or wrath, and malice, or greed, or envy, or jealousy, those, those kinds of things, things that we should not do. But that's half of the equation. There's also things we should do. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 25, talks about various you know, fruits of the Spirit that we need to bear, just like a vine or a plant bears fruit. But a more notable passage is in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, where it says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. And then Peter, you know, continues on in verse uh, 8 through 11. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I have some other stuff to say, Brian, but I believe this particular passage in you know, Second Peter, you know, we have, I think, a whole series of podcasts that we've done with our preacher where he goes into even more depth as to explain that. Brian, can you maybe look up what the podcast number is that we can you know, give to our audience while I keep on going? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So anyway, Paul pretty much pretty much says the same thing, something very similar uh, in 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 to 1 through 13 after talking about the example of the Israelites in the wilderness, you know, uh, after their exodus from Egypt and their unfaithfulness, beginning with verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 10, but with most of them God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. We should not become idolaters, as were some of them. Nor let us commit sexual immorality or fornication, as some of them did. Let um, me kind of skip forward. Uh, tempting Christ. Uh, complain, verse 10, verse 11. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Keep Verse verse 12, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has been overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, 
but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So, two quick answers. In summary, one is everything we do, everything we don't do, everything we say, don't say, everything we think or don't think, you know, we need to be constantly examining ourselves in light of the scriptures. That's, that's the first main point uh, to answer Bisayo's question. The second point is, if you notice all those readings, they point or warn to the fact that Christians can sin and can fall away and be lost as a result. We need to be constantly examining ourselves, constantly looking to weed out sin, constantly looking to improve, etc. And that certainly refutes, if you will, the false claim of what's often called once saved, always saved. Uh, and indirectly, the a related doctrine called faith only. That indeed, once we have become a Christian, we need to continue to press forward, to improve, to, to repent of sin uh, in our lives, lest we become disqualified, just like Paul was concerned about becoming disqualified. Brian, back over to you. Yeah, such an important process throughout our entire life, and it never ends, does it? We should continually do that. And you were mentioning the Adding to the Faith series. For those of you that listen to the podcast through a podcast player, and you can go back in episodes, it's going to be episodes 136 through 144. And also, if you prefer to use our website and listen through the podcast page, you'll notice there under Christian Living, it lists all of those as well. And then one other thing I think is helpful, and we actually did a two-part podcast on this as well under Christian Living, and that is spiritual self-assessment, right? Something you put together, Jeff. If you go to our website, biblequestions.org, and under the Lessons button and then Christian Living, you'll see a section called Self-Assessment. And uh, Jeff, i tell you what, let me just turn it back over to you. Maybe you can just quickly tell people what that was about, and then we'll move on to the next question. Yeah, basically, it was kind of a, a practical uh, tool or technique that I pulled together. You know, a whole series of questions uh, that a person can uh, you know, read through and self-administer uh, a personal assessment. It's certainly by no means every single thing that a person should or shouldn't do. It's more of a sampling. Uh, you know, the, 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 the extensive truth obviously would be within the scriptures. Um, but kind of a man as, as a way to maybe challenge one's thinking uh, in terms of your, you know, prayer life or um, religious worship or, you know, Bible reading or, you know, just a number of different things. So would certainly encourage our, our listeners to take advantage of that resource as well. Yeah. And just real quick, the uh, if you'd like to listen to the two part podcast we did on that document, if you will. It's episodes 98 and 99, or on our website under the podcast section, you'll see it under Christian Living. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate you looking that up. Okay, so you get the next one from Oscar. He says, where in the Bible does it say that we have free will? It's a great question. Some may not know, you know, what, what's meant by free will. Sometimes you'll hear it even called like free moral agency, but it's basically where God allows us to freely decide what we do in life. And so where in the Bible does it say this? Well, there are many, many passages. I just selected a few. First, in the old, under the old law, Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, we can see here that God wanted everyone to choose whether or not they would follow the, follow the Lord. And of course, we see that going back to the very beginning, right, with Adam and Eve and then Cain and Abel, 
Abel followed what God wanted. Cain did not. They had a choice. Joshua 24, beginning in verse 14, says, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. He then goes on to say in verse 15, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So that's Joshua speaking clearly says it's choice that we have. When we come to the New Testament, same thing, Acts chapter 10. Uh, This is in the uh, situation where Peter taught Cornelius in his household the truth, and the Lord taught Peter that the gospel is for all of mankind, not just for the Jews. So then Peter comes to this conclusion after he sees the fact that God accepted the Gentiles by filling them with the Holy Spirit like we were talking about earlier. They started speaking in tongues. And then it dawned on Peter that, you know what, anyone who's obedient and chooses to do the Lord's will is acceptable to God. So he says in Acts 10, verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. So we can see there that's choice. Jeff, could I get you to read Romans chapter 2, in verse 5, we're told about the righteous judgment of God. If I could get you to read verses 6 through 11, we see a lot of choices in here as well. Okay. It says, God will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, likewise to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Yeah, so that last statement for there is no partiality with God is the key statement because it says that God is impartial. He does not show favoritism. He does not He treats everybody the same, and that's only possible because he allows us to freely choose whether or not we want to serve him, and that's what allows him, of course, to be a just God. So as Jeff read through there in Romans chapter 2, you see it talks about eternal life will be given to those who by patient continuance do good, but for those, as it says, that are self-seeking, they do not obey the truth. So you can see there, that's their choice. They will suffer indignation and wrath. The man who does evil or the man who works what is good will be justly judged and either punished or rewarded, if you will, with eternal life in heaven if we are found faithful. And so that all says, hey, you know what? It's up to us. In fact, the scriptures say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So God leaves it up to us. So anyhow, these passages really just show that it's our choice and that, you know, ultimately God does not want any to be lost, right? So 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us, you know, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he gives us the choice. He wants us to do it. And we'll get into some steps here in our next question as far as what what God requires of us. But anyhow, Jeff, I'll turn it over to you. Well, and there are some religious groups out there that basically deny what we just got through talking about. Even though you know the scriptures do indicate that the 
God, you know, gives us the choice and, you know, we make the choice. The kind of doctrines I'm kind of thinking of are like predestination, as an example, or some parts of uh, what's called Calvinism, where, you know, based on quote-unquote original sin, you're totally incapable of doing anything good, and therefore it takes a direct work of God, miraculous, basically, to enable you to even have faith, and that even that faith is basically from God. Basically, God does everything, right? And if God does everything, then you have no part of it and can't be lost. So there's all different kinds of doctrines. False doctrines are sort of interwoven together that would basically mean, you know, man is not responsible, which, as you've indicated, is, is certainly not the truth, that, that we are indeed will be held accountable, held responsible. As we were saying earlier, for what we do, what we don't do, what we say, what we don't say, you know, what we think, what we don't think. Uh, so uh, certainly is, uh, you know, multiple doctrines sort of like <laughs> interwoven together under this canopy or under the topic of quote unquote free will. <laughs> Brian, anything else? Yeah, that's right. And, and we've had some podcasts, for instance, on Calvinism. And to your point, as you dig into any of these, you start to find out pretty quickly that there we, we could not have a just judgment if God either showed partiality, right, only saving so many, or if we didn't have a say in the matter. We couldn't possibly be justly judged, right, anyhow. So some digging into those doctrines allows you to come to that conclusion. All right. So, Jeff, the next question for you comes from Shola. What does the Bible say about blasphemy and the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Yeah, you know, this is one of those questions, Jeff, over the years that we get a lot, don't we, about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, where I think it's confusing to people. It does. Uh, and as we'll see in a few moments, it, it gets kind of connected with what's sometimes called the unforgivable sin that people, you know, really freak out about because, hey, you know, I may have committed the unforgivable sin and now I'm lost, I can never repent, etc. So there's, yeah, certainly a lot of uh, angst that kind of goes along with it. So let's kind of start off with uh, something simple. So I went to a Bible dictionary, and since the word blasphemy is something that, you know, you know we you normally don't use in modern uh, contexts, need to, you know, understand what the definition is. Okay. So again, from a biblical perspective, blasphemy has a couple different meanings. One meaning is to speak evil of God. That particular usage you can find, and this is according to this dictionary, can find in Psalms 74, verse 18, uh, Isaiah 52, verse 5, Romans 2, verse 24, Revelation 13, verse 1, and verse 6, Revelation 16, verses 9 and 11. Okay, so first of all, speaking evil of God, right? Secondly, uh, and very similar to, uh, making false or defamatory statements about someone in order to damage their reputation. Slander, evil speaking, or abuse. You can find that in 1 Kings 21, verse 10, Acts 13, verse 45, Acts 18, verse 6. Again, speaking evil of, or slandering, or you know, making false statements. Our Lord was accused of, quote-unquote, blasphemy when he claimed to be the Son of God. You can read about that in Matthew 26, verse 85, in Matthew 9, verse 3. So, when it comes to, you know, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, again, can be, you know, speaking evil of, making statements to, you know, damage the reputation, slander, etc. 
Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, recorded in Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Parallel passages, Mark 3, 28, Luke 12, verse 10. Now, this, let, me, let me go ahead and quote what the dictionary says. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is regarded by some as a continued and obstinate rejection of the gospel and hence is an unpardonable sin simply because as long as the sinner remains in unbelief, he voluntarily excludes himself from pardon. Continuing the quotation, others regard the expression as designating the sin of attributing to the power of Satan those miracles which Christ performed, and generally those works which were the result of the Spirit's agency. So let's look at one of those passages, Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32. Uh, Brian, in fact, do you want to go ahead and read that for our listeners? Uh, yes, here it says, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. So as we said up front, you know, sometimes this is called the unforgivable or the unpardonable sin. Now, let's get simple here. Simple truth. Any sin is forgivable so long as the person complies with what God requires the person do in order to be forgiven. Okay? Several different aspects. I mean, people who have no regard for God and the gospel, who live their lives, uh, along the lines as recorded in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, cannot be forgiven. People who are so hardened in their heart that they ascribe the miracles of Jesus to the power of Satan, which is the context of this, uh, what Jesus was referring to a few moments ago, they cannot be forgiven. Uh, and I might go on to say, you know, people who are initially forgiven and become Christians and they after persist in willful sin, they cannot be forgiven. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, and Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 through 31. Uh, you might also be able to, you might make the case that, you know, suicide might also be unforgivable uh, due to the fact uh, or inability to repent, you know, before uh, the act. And as you were reading earlier, you know, there's a lot of scriptures that indicate man will be judged based on what he has done. Not only one's initial belief in Jesus as the Savior, but ongoing actions or lack of actions or, you know, rightful deeds versus sinful deeds. Okay. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the definition I was reading, Brian, earlier, you know, someone who persists in denying the gospel versus, you know, someone who ascribes the acts of Jesus, the miracle, miracles of Jesus to Satan. I tend to believe the latter because, uh, you know, contextually it's like, and this is a little bit of opinion, you know, if someone were to see a direct, undeniable miracle performed by Jesus and turn around and say, oh, that's just Satan working through Jesus. You know, if, if, if you can't be persuaded by an obvious miracle, what else is there to persuade you that what Jesus is claiming, you know, being the son of God is legitimate? It's like, if, if that doesn't persuade you, I don't know what else would. And hence, in some ways, it means you're you know in a state so hardened that you can't be forgiven because there's nothing else that you know person could appeal to to influence you, you know, to repent. Anyway, that's a little bit of uh, speculation or personal opinion thrown in there as well. Brian, anything you want to add? 
Yeah, I agree. And I think that people often make passages that they just read on the surface with no additional study or context or harmonizing it with other scriptures. It's easy for people to come to the wrong conclusion. And of course, false teachers latch onto that and come up with all kinds of doctrines, right? So I appreciate how you said, hey, let's just boil it down, you know, to the simple. And the simple is, if you repent and you're baptized, you'll be saved. If not, you'll be lost. So any sin that you don't repent of can cause you to be lost. And and so it's if we just keep it simple based on the other scriptures, uh, it often can be easily or more easily, I should say, <laughs> understood. I, I like that. All right. So Chantel writes in, do I have to repent? Oh, here's another <laughs> repentance question. Do I have to repent of my sins every day or has Christ done that already by dying on the cross for me. Yeah, this is also something that the questions like this that can be born out of things like Calvinism, where some would believe or be taught to believe that God has already determined how many are going to be saved, that we're irresistibly drawn or not, and therefore Christ is taking care of everything. He's died on our behalf. There's nothing we have to do. So the good news is the Bible's pretty clear on this as it relates to Christ's death on the cross allows our sins to be forgiven, but we are responsible for repenting of our sins. And no doubt when Jesus died on the cross, he we use the term the scriptures do too, right? Paid the price for sin. He took on sin, became the peace offering, if you will, between us and God to restore our relationship. But when Jesus died on the cross, he he opened up the possibility that we could have our sins forgiven. Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says the wages of sin is death, but there is a gift from God through Christ Jesus. And so once again, Christ's death has allowed our sins to be forgiven. Now, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So when Jesus was put to death, I I like how Peter phrases this here, of course, the Holy Spirit through Peter, that he might bring us to God. That's what it allowed us to do. Now, verse 21, as you go on in verse Peter 3 says, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So just like Jesus died and arose, when we are baptized, we die to sin, we arise to walk in newness of life, the scriptures tell us, and so forth. So Christ's death allows our sins to be forgiven. Now, for us to have our sins forgiven initially, of course, we need to follow what we often call the plan of salvation. So we'll just quickly walk through this. But, you know, God wants us to hear his word, either by reading it, through hearing a sermon, through hearing a podcast. Ultimately, though, we need to understand what the Bible is teaching. And when we do so, it gives us faith. So Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So when we hear the word of God, it gives us faith. Well, what faith does it give us? Well, that God exists, that Jesus is his son, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, all of those sorts of things. And when we hear that message and we believe it, well, John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, our choice, right, Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So we see that it's required that we believe, 
we need to repent for Acts 3.9. Peter says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. We need to confess. Romans 10.10 tells us that with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. And we see that example from the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 and verse 37 where he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and then he was baptized. So we do the same thing today. And then, of course, we must be baptized. And so as Ananias told Paul in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So we see here, these are all steps that we must take to be saved. And then after we're baptized and quote unquote saved, right? Well, we need to be faithful unto death, as we see in Revelations 2.10. And then we're also told in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47 that we're added to what we often call the universal church, which is all of God saved on the earth. And so all these are passages that tell us, here's what you need to do. And then after we're baptized, you know, getting back to the, the point about from Chantel about, do I have to repent of my sins every day? The answer is yes. If you sin, you always need to repent. And 1 John chapter 1 tells us this. Beginning in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, or if we say, well, Jesus has already died for me and taking care of my sin, well, it says here, we've made him a liar and his word is not in us. So personal responsibility, I guess, Jeff, that's almost kind of been a theme, hasn't it, <laughs> for our podcast about it's a personal responsibility to believe, repent, and so forth. Yeah, in some ways, yes. And of course, you know, not at all to minimize the the ninety nine percent. If I could just throw out a random number of what God has done for us that we could never have done for ourselves. You know, in terms of you know plan of salvation, sending His Son, you know, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, and you know, we we yeah, a, a little bit, <laughs> a small part. But it is an important you know, part, as you indicated. Yeah, sometimes, Brian, we get questions on the website like, I have heard that Jesus Christ has forgiven me of my sins, past, present, and future. Uh, and, you know, they see some verses that seem to contradict that, the, the, particularly the future part. Because, you know, well, if Jesus has already forgiven me for all of my future sins, then why do I need to repent? And as you pointed out, it's not that he has forgiven them, but he has enabled them to be forgiven when we do what we need to do. So, yeah, good good thoughts, Brian. Yeah, appreciate that. Uh, we have one more question, Jeff, for you, coming from Mac. And I like this question because we often talk about, like, praying to Jesus, but he asks, is it proper to worship Jesus? Which is kind of thought-provoking in a way, you know? You know, it was. Because, you know, I immediately started thinking, you know, prayer to Jesus, but I said, no, he didn't say prayer. He said worship. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a, there's a little bit of a nuance there. So since Jesus is deity, generally speaking, the answer is yes, it is proper to worship Jesus. Hebrews chapter one, verse eight, the angels did, you know, when he was born. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, the wise men worshipped him. The leper worshipped him, Matthew 8, 2. Matthew 14, 33, and Matthew 28, verses 9 and verses 11, the disciples worshipped Jesus. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, uh, talks about, you know, it's sometimes referred to as the Great Commission. 
But notice this, Jesus came and spoke to them, and this is after his resurrection, before his ascension. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, of course that's Jesus, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in a general sense of, of worship, to adore, to praise, etc., to you know, to honor, to revere, all that, the general answer would be yes. Now, Brian, to the point you were making earlier, generally when we hear the word worship, you know, we tend to think in terms of like public worship or worship services, you know, on Sunday, uh, etc. And so in our worship service, when we are addressing deity, you know, like via prayer, you know, we do tend to think in terms of the Father, you know, directing prayer to God the Father. You know, we tend not to think in terms of directing prayer to Jesus. We don't think in terms of directing prayer to the Holy Spirit. And so we kind of think, you know, why is that? Well, okay, first of all, let's, let's consider John chapter 4, verses 24. You know, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Of course, this is Jesus saying God is a spirit. Okay, continuing on, uh, Acts chapter 17. This is an interesting passage where, where Paul is in uh, Athens, if I remember, Athens, Greece. Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse... 23. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, which is a, a forum there in Athens, and said, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things that you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Skipping down to verse 30, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. That's Jesus. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Point being, when Paul explained to the Athenians God and the God who should be worshipped, the emphasis was more on the Father, not necessarily the Son. Likewise, uh, Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 4 through 8, where it talks about praying uh, and who we should pray to. Verse 5, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And he goes on with the rest of the prayer. So, 
particularly in terms of prayer, that should be addressed to, you know, God, to deity, to the Father. And yet at the same time, can we honor and, you know, worship and praise the Father and the Son and, you know, even the Holy Spirit as, as deity and all the wonderful stuff they've done to us and, you know, reference them in some of the songs we sing? I, I believe that'd be perfectly fine. Brian, do you have anything you want to add to that? I'll just add that, yeah, you're right. I mean, Jesus allowed himself to be worshipped. In contrast to, like, Peter, for instance, somebody falls at his feet, Cornelius did, of course, and, you know, he said, Stan, I myself am also a man. An angel, I can think of one occasion, I can't remember who fell at his feet. He said the same thing, stand up. He, so they, men didn't allow themselves to be worshipped, which should be a lesson <laughs> to us all, right? But Jesus did allow himself to be worshipped, and uh, appreciate how you walked through that, because... You're right, it's appropriate, but let's not lose sight of God is at the top, so to speak. So, Yep, good points. So I think that kind of brings us to the end of today's podcast. As I said, when I kicked it off, various questions. Hopefully our audience has found you know, worthwhile uh, to listen to the question uh, and to the answer from the second half of 2023. And, and Brian, time permitting, I suspect we'll probably do some more things in the future as we get into uh, 2024. As the questions just keep on rolling in. Yeah, we appreciate everybody who submits questions. And as Jeff touched on earlier, it's really easy to submit one on our website. And then also, I think we're over, what, 1,200 questions and articles now on the website. Is that right? Yes, we are. There's a lot of material at the website. But, you know, we, we still keep getting questions because people... You know, are interested. Um, they may have unique circumstances. They may not be aware there are articles that already address their question, but uh, that's okay. We uh, we'll, we'll take all the questions that are uh, you know uh, you know sincere and within uh, the scriptural things. Yeah, I appreciate that. Even if we've already answered it and it's on the site, maybe as Jeff pointed out, you have some nuance. Feel free. We'll we'll take your questions at any time. One other thing I'll mention real quick before I give a couple other resources back at the website, and that is on the front page of our website, BibleQuestions.org, there's a search box. That search has been indexed, or the entire website is indexed when you search, use that search box. So that, for instance, you know, you could certainly go to B if you wanted to look at everything we had on baptism, or you could just type in the word baptism, and it's going to literally go across the site. And whether it's lessons or sermons that have been preached or articles and questions, you're going to get all those responses back. So it's a very powerful search tool. Uh, Jeff administers the site, does a great job organizing it. And you'll see that he's put an alphabetical index on that front page. You can also select the topic section for that same alphabetical index. And based on what we talked about today, you can choose the letter A for apostasy, O for obedience, C for Christian living, P for prayer, W for women leaders, or W for worship. So those are just some of the things that we talked about in the podcast today. As always, we encourage you to take what we've said or anything that you hear, go to the scriptures, see what the scriptures say, and then do everything you can to apply it to your life. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.